first story deals with a subculture of heavy metal music that some feel is sending a dangerous message to your kids. The forces of evil on the dark side of devil rock. And I want to talk tonight about the devil and demons and witches and wizards. And we just mix it up with hardcore and aggression and come out with something that we think is an original sound. Loud, fast, heavy, you know. Well, what do you got? What do you got? You're listening to Riff Worship, the podcast that attempts to answer the age-old question, what makes a riff? Why do we worship all things with the riff? I'm one of your hosts, Austin Paulson. With me, as always, is the great, bald, hope, (laughs) son of Arkansas, (laughs) Dylan Adams. Dylan, how you doing, man? I'm doing good, bud. How are you today? Great, man. I think uh, this is our second guest. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a person who I would consider as exactly why we did a podcast like this, a, a purveyor of the riff, a, a riff disciple. Uh, he definitely has big riff energy. Uh, his latest album, uh, Ghosts at the Gallows, is going to be out on uh, August, 18th, eight, ooh, August 18th through Century Media Records. I'm, of course, talking about Nate Garrett of Spirit of Drift. Nate, how are you, man? Doing good, man. How are you guys? Great. Uh, Arkansas. I, like I was <laughs> always thinking of the connection here. Both of you guys from the Arkansas area, and you know, I think one of the things I wanted to touch out, touch on about this record, and I've heard you discuss it on your podcast a little bit as well, is that you know, and maybe this is a question for both of you, both from the South. Um, I think it's very clear that your upbringing and the kind of the setting that you grew up in has certainly influenced your writing and this record specifically as well. But I think people love to talk about things that they don't understand. And I wanted to know maybe for both of you, what, what do you think people, what do you want people to know about the South? I'm sure there's a, a lot of things that people get wrong. Like what, you know, what is it about that people may uh, get wrong or underestimate about, you know, Arkansas or where y'all grew up? So that's a great question, man. Uh, I tend to be pretty long winded. So Dylan, if you want to give your two cents, I'll, I'll go after, after you. Hey, that's, that's funny enough. Uh, Austin's been around me for quite a few years, and he knows uh, my propensity to ramble. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> Southern thing. Yeah, exactly. You can start us out, and I'll just vamp off that. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I was born in Florida. I only lived there like four years, but my early memories are, you know, humidity and daily rainfall in the ocean and stuff, uh, and then moved to Oklahoma, which was quite different. Uh, as far as the landscape, um, culturally also a little bit different. Um, and I, I went to school there from like kindergarten till I graduated high school, uh, kind of a small town, not a super small town, but small enough that it was so boring that you have to (laughs) sort of invent your own entertainment, which for me and my close group of friends, you know, we're going to talk about the darkness permission to land later. That was a soundtrack to like junior year of high school. And there was a lot of, uh, just mayhem, man, a lot of like love of music. And, um, you know, I think people, uh, people really have a deeper appreciation of things like music, especially like, people who have come from the Appalachian region or the deep South where there's not a lot of money and not a lot of opportunity and a lot of, not, not a lot of entertainment. Yeah. Um, for, for my ancestors, like in Kentucky and stuff, music is like the only thing they had is literally the only, like, if you were lucky, you could get a hold of an instrument. If not, you're just singing, you know? 
Um, but yeah, I graduated high school, went to Fayetteville, Arkansas to go to college. Uh, but the whole, the whole love of music and the love of partying and mayhem and bedlam, it just pulled me right back in. So started touring again, but like going to, you know, my first show in Arkansas was a house show and I saw one band that was kind of in the style of DRI or early COC, maybe even a little early Megadeth. And I saw another band that was somewhere between like Warhorse, Bongzilla, and I Hate God. And both bands were every bit as good as the influences I mentioned. Um, and it's stuff nobody's ever heard of. And then, you know, going to Little Rock, the first show that I saw in Little Rock, a legendary venue owned and operated by the guys from Wake. That's Wake with an R. I uh, saw the Voices of Omens album release, and it, it changed my life, man. Uh, you know, there's... Uh, uh, there's a song on our new record siren of the south that's sort of a love hate relationship like love slash love letter slash death threat to the south uh because you know i was just telling my wife a minute ago i never had an authority figure tell me the truth about anything whether that was like in the church or the fucking sheriff or the drug education people I had some good teachers and there were some good people in my life, but there are few and far between. So that's kind of on the bad end of things of the South. There's a, still a lot of bigotry, closed mindedness, ignorance, poverty. Um, a lot of that, I think is still even like the South hasn't recovered from the civil war. Um, but on the other side, I think people are more passionate than anywhere else in the country. Uh, there is a real element to Southern hospitality and, you know, I've lived in big cities and I've lived in Southern rural areas and people in the South aren't going to bullshit you about anything. And I, I like that. It's real. It's real for better or worse. It's, it's real. So there's my rant. Go no, ahead, that's Dylan. great. Yeah. I'm Dylan. You're from kind of a, a small town in like North, Northern part of Arkansas or where we're yeah, at uh, Northwest Arkansas. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so we would, um, you've heard me say this throughout the years, we would either have to travel roughly about an hour and a half South to little rock for shows, or we would have to drive the two to two and a half hours to Memphis for shows. Uh, so it was a bit out of the way. Uh, but I, I was born in Anniston, Alabama, uh, probably spent six months there and then traveled around the different states where my father had to work. Uh, and then I went back to Arkansas when I was about three, which is where my mother was born. And I spent a lot of time in small towns. Uh, you know, I first 10 years of my life, I spent in essentially in a trailer park growing up in there. So, you know, very uh, low income housing, low income uh, family, that sort of thing. Uh, essentially a single mother. And, um, around the age of 11 or 12, I moved to a very small area known as Pangburn, Arkansas, which is, uh, in between a resort town and a city called a resort town called Heber Springs and a city called Searcy. Um, and that's essentially where I spent my high school years. And you've heard me make jokes about being there for years. Um, you know, to find music, I was in such a hole that, I would have to go to the the local Hastings Music and like buy whatever magazine was there. I don't know how many Hit Parader magazines I bought, Metal Edge, uh, Early Revolver. Um, you know, I remember picking up the Dimebag Daryl Tribute issue that had like a rundown of the top 50 heaviest bands of all time. And 
all most, if not all of those bands, I still listen to to this day. Like seeing Neurosis on there, Strapping Young Lad, uh, all of those bands. Um, I also remember buying whatever book I could find that was about heavy music or hard rock and going like, that's a great band to listen to. You know, that's how I picked up Carcass's Heartwork. I was like, that looks fucking cool. Let's get it. And then it like changed my life. Um, going to shows, you know, it was like you had the you almost had to dig underground to to find it. You almost had to search for water to find the cool shows to go to. You know, um, I went to a lot of larger shows in that area. Um, yeah, and what in was the Little the, Rock area. What was that? Uh, you we we talked about it in a previous episode. What was mm-hmm. the 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 Mexican restaurant that had the venue in it? Oh, Juanitas, Juanitas oh, Bar yeah. and Grill. <laughs> I yeah. feel like I saw Saviors there maybe once with Dead Bird. Oh, oh, cool. Sick. Might have been Vino's. But Vino's okay, is a that's, place, so yep. not, not too much different. Nope. Uh, awesome. Vino's, I saw some cool stuff there. I saw a a really big tour in like 07 that was like, you know, a lot of the modern deathcore bands at the time, like Job for Cowboy's first headlining tour, uh, I saw there. Um, but I also in like 07, I got to see I got to see Wake for the first time. I saw them open for Lamb of God on the Sacrament tour in Memphis, uh, which was a really fun one. Um but to, to to add to what Nate said, uh, I think a lot of the Southern hospitality is is definitely where I think some of the predispositions to the South comes from that, you know, some of this were, some of us had just learned how to speak. Some of us have never found a toothbrush, you know, whatever it may be. And you, you know, depending how you view it, you know, a lot of people down here are very straightforward. It's just learning it's learning the dialect. It's learning how uh, the approach of the language is because I have, I mean, I've had some great conversations with people throughout my life. You know, everybody in my family is really hardworking people. Um, I spent a lot of time learning from my aunts and uncles and other extended family members, like how to put in the work. Uh, and I took that approach to music as well of like, if I'm going to do anything and accomplish anything with my playing, my ability, whatever it is, I have to do it. Nothing else is going to help me with that. And I took that approach. And anybody I've communicated with in this area, which uh, I'm about 40 miles north of Nashville, um, and anybody I've met in you know different areas of the country that talk about like the South, uh, I distinctly have distinctly remember having a conversation at a Paul Bear show in Louisville, which actually Nate, you played uh, with Gate Creeper at that show. Um, we, I had a conversation with a guy there about Pantera, of all things, because I think all of us in the South that are into heavy music have taken Pantera and internalized it, and it's, it's gone forth with us. It's a lot of people don't understand the effect of Pantera. They hear it, they hear the aggressive side of it and go, ah, here's what it is. But they don't truly understand the roots of the South that that music has and how much heavy music has its footing in the South as well. Um, but you know, it also adds to all of the bigotry that's still here that still runs rampant. You know, I I see it on a daily basis. I deal with it on a daily basis because of the the work I'm in. Um, and I still see it with family members. And it's just it's it's a little gross. I understand um some of the some of the issues that people have with the South, but that's also what um a lot of us from the South are trying to you know, get a point across of like, hey, there's some hyper intelligent people down here. There's some people with a lot of soul, a lot of heart um, and just a, a lot of aggression as well. 
That's it, man. And there's races everywhere. Absolutely. Oregon has Portland, but it's also the biggest stronghold for white power sex that there is anywhere in the country. So it's like, just because you got Portland doesn't make you immune, you know? And dude, you mentioned a couple of things. I'm just going to cut in real quick because like, dude, so much that you've said I relate to like Hastings, going to Hastings, getting revolver. I did all that same shit. And I was having a conversation with a friend yesterday about how buying a CD with money that you earned mowing a lawn. That's a listening to that is way different than listening to an album on Spotify. It's just different. There's a different connection. There's a different passion. And you mentioned soul and all that. And yeah, there's also kind of like an underdog thing in the South. Like you mentioned, if you're going to succeed, it's because you put in the work. It's like, none of us have connections. None of us have an uncle that played in Van Halen or managed, you know, uh, Stevie Nicks or like, there's none of that. There's none of that. If you're really lucky, you might have connections in Nashville, but I don't know anybody that did, you know, and, and dude, the blues came from the South, right? Sure. And did. the blues turned into heavy met, like the blues made it overseas. And those dudes, bands like Zeppelin and Sabbath made it heavier. And that's where metal came from. So it's, you know, in my opinion, if we're talking about heavy music, it came from the South. If you trace it all the way back. You know? I couldn't agree more. I mean, even in terms of like, yeah, if we want to go back blues country, I mean, there's so much there, but even in terms of like modern metal music, I mean, just think of all the things that, you know, this area that I feel like is often glossed over and just like, you know, cast to the side. I mean, sludge metal, New Orleans, yep. death metal in Tampa, Florida. Florida. I mean, uh, Mastodon and Baroness, Georgia, like it's so crucial to like everything that happens now. If you're playing in a modern metal band, a lot of that stuff has direct ties to Crowbar or whatever. You know, it's it's yeah. all it's all there. And I guess uh, I would have to imagine, you know, growing up in the South, too. I mean, obviously, blues and country music. You know, maybe after like a, a a show, you know, are you turning it on to like some old country music just to like, you know, what what's what kinds of things are happening uh, in in the vehicle if you're making a long drive? Man, if I'm driving, um, there's always a point of tour where we listen to the first five Leonard Skinner albums, like start to finish. Um, there'll usually be a point in the tour where we'll listen to a few Creedence Clearwater records, like the three or four really good ones. Uh though honestly those are the first two bands that i remember hearing when i was like four or five six years like you hear bullshit like raffi or whatever like i i think i went to disney world or land to at some point and saw the video for thriller in like a 3d theater so that was cool but i wasn't so much like taking note of the music i, I didn't really care that much but when i started hearing like tuesday's gone and uh you know fortunate son and stuff i started my brain really caught on to that stuff and i think it was the guitar probably those are both pretty cool lead guitar things um so i that's if if you want to go back to my very beginning of interest in music it's those two bands uh and then hendrix and sabbath and that's where it all went but i i found my find myself lately really leaning on that stuff, man. Like the stuff I grew up with. And, you know, the last thing that I personally, I've been touring for a really long time. I've been playing shows since I was 14, 
13, 14, somewhere around there. I've been touring since I was 17 to 19, depending on how you want to define touring. And dude, the last thing I want to hear most days is like some brutal, heavy, loud, angry stuff. I, I would rather hear something that's soothing to me in some way. And sometimes that stuff can be like Tom, our guitar player, wasn't familiar with carnivore. Oh, there you go. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I was like, all right, well, yeah, we got to do that. I was like, disclaimer, <laughs> this is like intentionally the most hateful, <laughs> this self-loathing and outwardly directed hateful record ever made. Yeah. And Jimmy Bauer actually introduced me to retaliation back in when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, so every once in a while we'll listen to like carnivore retaliation or I'll put on, uh, death, spiritual healing, um, just all kinds of stuff, man. I will always listen to Tyler Childers and Sturgill Simpson and Waylon Merle Haggard, uh, Dolly Parton. The amount of drive still and, and I have like done from like Nashville to, to Bowling Green, just to like going from shows and like you hear like the most in your face, just like heavy thing. And then it's like, all right, we're just going to listen to Hank like all the way on. <laughs> yeah. like and that. dude, I love the radio. I'm like old school with that too. Cause I, one of my most formative influences growing up was like 103.3 out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, the Eagle. And if so they would play everything from like blue oyster cult and Boston to like Tom Petty. And every once in a while it'd be like an old Metallica song, maybe a black album song. Um, so I would like, if I'm bored, sometimes I'll just cruise the radio and I love listening to like crazy preachers, which is everywhere. And, uh, you know, you can get some good song ideas listening to like super fire and brimstone psychopath preachers all over the. Country. Oh yeah. Some like weird, like Leuven brothers, like, uh, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. but it, I, I definitely feel like all of that have, uh, all of these influences that you've mentioned are certainly appearing on the singles that we've heard so far for this upcoming record. And I guess I, I'd like to ask as well, like now that it's we're kind of nearing the the release date, all the songs are done. There's been so much like great artwork and visual content uh, as a part of these this record. I guess like how does it feel like now that you all this work and energy that's been going into it? I guess I guess I can't really ask until it's it's out. But you've had albums under your belt before. Like how does it feel for you whenever it's just like out there in the world, like it's done? Man, it feels uh, great when it when I'm holding a record in my hands. That's when I get a really good feeling from it. I have a very hard time stopping and appreciating anything that I've accomplished because it's never enough. I have that like syndrome, whatever that is. I think it's related to drug addiction and alcohol abuse and creativity. I think it all is like one package, you know, uh, and Schwarzenegger talked about that on the new documentary. When he reaches a peak, he looks at the next one. He's like, where's the next peak? You know? Uh, yeah. We, we had to, we, we drilled through that pretty quick. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I loved it. Uh, but so, yeah, I, I've tried to consciously put work into um, taking a moment and appreciating my accomplishments because it's can be kind of a miserable existence to be that driven. It's not fun. Um. So there'll be a point through every album I've ever made. There's a point where I have like a borderline nervous breakdown and it's usually right after we're done recording because I've been so dialed in the zone like 12 hours a day for however long. And you have all this like energy and hopes and dreams and work ethic and all this stuff that you're using up every day. And then when, when you're done recording, it's like, you're in a you're you're operating at a certain rpm 
and then all of a sudden you're at zero but like you're not moving but your internal rpm is still all the way up there that happened to me at least like 10 times during the making of the new album uh so it was man i i put everything i've got into it um and you know i it's I experience it on such a different timeline than anybody else does because I wrote the first song for the album, which is these two hands. That's the first one I wrote, uh, middle of March, 2020. Right. So I've been working on it for three years, three and a half years, and I still work it. There's still things I have to do every day in anticipation of the release. So yeah, it won't feel done until I'm holding a record in my hand and it's out and I'm in a kayak somewhere on release day with my phone, like thrown in a dumpster Just away from me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the other thing about this record too, it seems like, you know, obviously you've, uh, you mentioned like it took over a few years to kind of compile everything. And, uh, you, you spent, uh, the recording process in a few different locations. Like you were kind of up in my neck of the woods at electrical audio, uh, recording with, uh, I believe it was, did I have it in my notes? Who, who was, uh, the engineer that you worked with at a electric my Audio. friend sanford parker that's yeah it. he's been around man he, he's recorded a lot of bands and played in a lot of really good bands too good guy and then jeff hansen out of uh red nova ranch as well uh-huh henson actually like jim oh. henson like the oh henson guy. got it <laughs> jeff, and, uh, jeff henson yeah what's the difference in recording with uh, you know maybe like the different studios like were there different techniques that these two like utilized were there Anything was there anything that you pulled from these experiences like that you would maybe use later on as well? Like what was the recording process like for these two? Totally. Yeah. I'll try to learn in everything that I do. Um, I've known Sanford forever. My old band in Arkansas actually made a record with him in 2008 at Electrical Audio. Yeah. I got to go see Obama get inaugurated in Chicago. In That's person wild. Too. Oh, wow. Insane. It was like the biggest fucking party I've ever seen. Uh that was while we were doing that record, a lot of mayhem. Um, and yeah, I just, I learned a lot from Sanford in 2008. He was really, you know, he recorded my favorite wake albums, all my three favorite wake albums. So that's how I got hooked up with them. And, um, he would, he intimidated the shit out of me <laughs> at that time, dude, he was playing in a band called buried at sea, super duper heavy duty stuff. Um, and he just had a death stare, man. He was just a scary motherfucker. Like, come to find out, he's not scary at all. We actually talked about that while we were recording the newest record. I was like, you know, you like, you were fucking intimidating, dude. Something about your eyes. He's like, a lot of people tell me that. I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> but um, no, he's just fun to work with. We just jive, man. Uh, every producer and every engineer is different. Uh, we have big personalities and uh, ideas and beliefs and uh, ways we do things um i love working with sanford because he figured out really quick like his style is to be um mean kind of like in the best way possible like as far as performance goes he he's gonna i think he figured out early on that i can totally take like abuse and so i would like do my best and he would just insult me or give me a look of like shame or something like that and that that's fun for me that kind of motivation is like real i like that sort of like uh macho environment you know and he's just he's a good dude he he knows what he's doing and 
he's a really good friend of mine. And, and that's more important than anything really is having people around that are a good vibe. And so Jeff Henson, I met him when I moved down to Texas. Uh, the first house my wife and I moved into is like really in the middle of nowhere. And Spirit of Drift got on the cover of Decibel magazine. The photographer came out to my house and he was like, hey, do you know that band Duel, D-U-E-L from Texas? I was like, yeah. He said, man, their guitar player has a studio like right over here. And I was like, that's not possible. We live in the middle of fucking nowhere. What are you talking about? And sure enough, this guy, we live in the same town, tiny town east of Austin, uh, connected through the local record store. I got his information and I was like obsessed with the Leonard Skinner documentary at the time where they were uh, writing and rehearsing in the hell house. It was just a shack on the water, like in the swamp outside of Jacksonville. And I get to Jeff's studio and it has that vibe hundred uh, percent. And he, yeah, he's been around for forever. He used to work with machine. So he, he worked on like Lamb of God records and clutch records and, um, Jeff and I worked together so well, uh, especially doing vocals. Like when you have enough experience in the studio, you get to the point where uh, you don't need to even examine something. You do the vocal line and you both know what wasn't right with it and you just do it again. So we got to a point where we weren't even talking. We were just, just going, just like reading each other's minds. Um, and it was it was cool to spend a lot of time locally. His studio is only like 10 minutes from where I live now. So I was able to spend more time on the vocals, which is a huge thing. Uh, I've always been on like a major time or budget crunch. And the thing that always seems to suffer from that are the vocals. Because it's like, all right, we got one day left. We got two days left. Do all the vocals and that's it. Um, this time around, I was able to like do a couple songs take a weekend off, do a couple songs, take a week off, go on tour, come back. And um, yeah, I've never been that uh, free time-wise to do vocals. When I think obviously like the guitar playing on, on a lot of the Spirit Drift stuff speaks for itself. It's incredible. The guitar harmonies, I mean, just everything is so uh, meticulous and thought out. But what I think maybe people overlook too is your vocal style is, is it fits perfectly for what you're doing and you know it's just like these big kind of like soaring like builds and was there anyone that like was there always like an itch to be a vocalist like were you trying to emulate anyone in particular when you starting to kind of come in your own in that way well thank you man first of all that's that's awesome to hear i appreciate it um you know i sang in the school choir uh when i was growing up and i actually some of that stuff was useful the physicality of it, but some of it I had to really actively unlearn when I started singing heavy music. Um, you know, I, I sang in my first couple of bands in high school, wasn't any good. Um, and then I was in a band, uh, I was in one band in Arkansas where all I did was sing and it was more of like a punk band. So I was screaming. Um, I was really into an annihilation time at that mm. time. Tank rhymes. Yeah. yeah yeah uh and we were just ripping off annihilation time <laughs> hard it was a really fun band but after that i did a three-piece where i was on guitar and vocals and it was like i was really going for like a wino thing so like oh, spirit yeah. caravan or obsessed yep. or hidden hand or somewhere in there you know um 
when I started Spirit Adrift, I tried uh, like harsh vocals at first. I was really into that band Lost from Nashville at the yeah. time. Red My band. first Nashville show ever. No it shit. was uh, Lost opened. Weed Eater played in the middle, and then it was Saint Vitus to kind of tie it all together. Man, this is boys. yeah. That's it a was. Great show. What did what did Wino say, Dylan? Play the heavy one, which the- is like, <laughs> it's like, come on, man. Like, all right, this is good. I just saw him at Hellfest, man, and, and got to catch up. He's a good bud, man. He's such a fucking cool guy. Um, Very humble. Uh, So when I started Spirit of Drift, I was trying the lost vocals, and I was like, this ain't going to work. Uh, and, you know, I was big, big at the time into Warning. So Patrick Walker, one, still one of my favorite singers, and Yob. Mike's one of my favorite singers ever. He's the only dude to me that does cleans and death metal vocals, and it's not lame at all. <laughs> yeah, the way it contrasts like between the two. Uh, yeah, he's yeah. really, really good at both mm-hmm. of them, and they both sound unique. And nobody that does like cleans and harsh vocals nails it like him. No. Uh, and I was really into Paul Bear at the time. They're good friends of mine. Watch that band form and watch them come up, and it was so inspiring. So I was kind of going for that. Um, you know, in the beginning, I did everything asked backwards with this band. Usually you form a band with other people and then you jam and you write songs and you play shows and then you record and then your band gets bigger and then you start touring and stuff. I just started doing stuff. Like I just wrote all the songs, played all the instruments, did the vocals, didn't, um, didn't, put any effort into like pre-production or making sure that it's good enough before I put it out for the whole world to hear it, you know? So anybody that's been following this band, uh, you've seen me get better in real time. You've heard me get better in real time. I'm literally learning on the job. And that's why I really believe and know in my heart that every release that we've done is better than the previous one from a technical standpoint, whether you like the songs more or the sound of it more or whatever, but I know I'm doing a better job. Uh, I got really obsessed with Halford and Dio and oddly enough, George Jones, Mm -hmm. possibly from um, singing is a very physical thing and, and it's a very tricky thing and it's a very amorphous thing compared to drumming or guitar. So with the guitar, it's like, you hit this string with your right hand, you put your left hand here, and that's the note. Drumming, it's like, I take my hand and I hit the snare, and that's the snare. Singing is all internal. And it's like, I don't know really what a fucking vocal fold is or what it looks like. Nobody really does, you know? I guess throat surgeons or somebody. Sure. <laughs> I don't really know what my diaphragm is. You can explain it to me all day, but there's a difference between intellectually understanding something and having a physical awareness of what's going on. So I started studying anybody um, that I thought was just objectively skilled at the physical part of it. And I'm, I'm not going to sit around and listen to opera because I don't like that shit personally, but I do like George Jones. I do like Linda Ronstadt. Yeah. I like Dio. I like Brett Hoffman from Malevolent Creation, different yeah. vocal style, sure. yep. but very special sounding, very emotional sounding. Uh, So I'm just constantly trying to learn, man. But here's the thing. 
starting with forge your future, maybe starting a little bit with enlightened eternity. That was the first time where I was just like, I'm fine with the way I sound. So I'm just going to sound like how I sound. That's it. I like learning tricks from other people and stuff like that and being inspired by others, but it takes a while. Um, all good singers will tell you, it takes a while to find your own voice. And I finally did somewhere around, around then, you know, I remember watching, uh, I think VH1 had one of those, like when Metallica ruled the world documentaries at one point, and there was a statement made regarding, um, Hetfield's vocals, uh, on the early, on the no life to leather demo and the kill Em all album. And I think during the practicing, they kept saying, Hey, you're trying to emulate Vince Neil. Quit doing that. Just try to sound like yourself. And obviously it took really until Ride the Lightning for him to come into his own and you get that sound. But it just shows like as when we're young or maybe when we're starting out in whatever project we're in, we really want to emulate the people that, you know, influenced us. Right. We really want to try to add a little bit of that, but still keep our own characteristic in there. And after a while, you just go, well, I'm going to sound like myself no matter what, regarding if it's an instrument, your voice, whatever it is. Yeah. All the all the sums make the whole, but there's still a character of you in there. Absolutely, man. And Rick Rubin in his book, he he says he doesn't think that it's possible to rip off other artists because it's still coming out of you. You know, I don't know if I agree with that, but I I appreciate the point he's trying to make. <laughs> well, I think the theme really of our discussion is and we've been talking about it a lot is taking inspiration from, you know, the past and kind of putting it through our own lens. And I think the band that we're talking about, the album we're talking about today uh, is like a great example of that. I mean, sure. All of the influences there, whether it's like the seventies glam stuff or whatever, it it's all there for us to see, but the, the band that we're t discussing does it in such a unique way that it, they only sound like them to me. And of course, talking about the darkness permission to land from 2003 i don't think i think what makes spirit adrift so special is that you are taking from these influences but you're able to kind of like cultivate it in spirit adrift nobody sounds like to me i i hear spirit adrift that's what i got i think you did it solely because that's what you wanted to play this is exactly what i wanted to do maybe no one else was doing it quite like you so you did it and i think there's something to that with the darkness as well that no one else is doing it. Well, that's what we want to do. We, we, why, why would we do anything else? And maybe now the climate for guitar driven music is a little bit more progressive and open to different sounds and different styles. Whereas at the time of this release, I think no one was really doing this at all. No one gave a shit about this style. It was like the, clearly the trend was in a way different area and probably like, you know, yeah, it's guitar-driven music, but it really is just kind of like, well, that's just on the backdrop. Whereas this band comes out, and they are just shredding, and it's on fire. There's riffs all over this record. Uh, my question first, my first question to both of you is, I mean, and you're Dylan, you're a little bit older than I am, but in 2003, where exactly were you? Where did you first hear this record? What drew you in with it? I, I want to hear all about it. Well. Dylan, Dylan mentioned Hastings earlier. I got it. I got it from Hastings, man. I was 15 in 2003, but I'm pretty sure I was driving by the time this came out. So I might've been 16 things when you live in Oklahoma or Arkansas take a little longer to reach you, especially back then. You Absolutely. Know? But I, oddly enough, 
it had a hype sticker on it and it was Kerrang had given it a five out of five. Oh, that's cool. And um, this is back before Kerrang was saying stuff like Machine Gun Kelly is the most important rock star yeah. on the planet <laughs> and goofy fucking sellout spineless bullshit like that. Um, this was when music journalism maybe was in its like last death rattle of being fucking relevant to reality in any sort of way. So that's that's why I bought it. I just saw the hype sticker. Uh, I think I was vaguely aware of the single, which is actually like maybe my least favorite song on the album. Uh, Dylan, how'd you find it? So I was I was 13 and 03 when this album came out. So we're just a couple years apart there. Uh, I was actually on like a day trip with some friends and I was familiar with the single uh, and thought, you know what? This seems really cool. Something about all these harmonies from growing up and like hearing Almond Brothers and ZZ Top and all that just seems really fucking cool. And then seeing the bizarre video was what sold me. I was like, all right, this something about this is going to be really cool. I was at a, uh, I believe it was a Sam Goody uh, at the uh, one of the malls in Little Rock. And I just, I walked in, the guy behind the counter was like, hey man, this has a, a parental advisory sticker on it. He's like, ah, you're fine. Like <laughs> I looked like Bobby Hill at that point. So he was just like, ah, just take it, man. You're enjoying it. And I remember the sticker actually being on the models, uh, the models hind in on like the cover just saying, oh, you can't see this. And I remember I bought the CD, walked out, walked to the hot topic, a couple spots ab- uh, above it and bought the darkness t-shirt that I had. And, and like, I just remember hearing that. And I, I feel like maybe some of the promo shots from that album, or maybe they were in hit parade or something. Dan Hawkins had on a thin Lizzie shirt. And that's what got me into thin Lizzie was like hearing that album at that age after I'd maybe heard like Nirvana and green day bands like that. And then hearing all the classic stuff that I'd grown up with around my parents uh, hearing that was just like, oh, it can sound like this, but still sound modern at the same time. And not, you know, obviously in the day's mindset, I can go, it doesn't sound hokey. It doesn't sound cheesy. It's not pandering. It's just a really great sounding hard rock record. Totally. You just reminded me of another reason that I, I think I bought the CD. You mentioned getting a darkness shirt and mm-hmm. I had like a visual flashback. Guitar World magazine. There, Mark Morton from Lamb of God was in some ads every month. I don't You're know right. for his guitars, but he had a darkness shirt on. Yep. That's it. And it's such a great band name. You're like the darkness. Like it's so spinal tap on the line of it's a fine line between clever and stupid. They like the whole band lives on that line. The whole, everything they do, their songs, their lyrics, the way they look, it is on the spinal tap line of clever and stupid. And that's just, that's cool. Nobody was doing, like you said, man, nobody was doing it. It like, I remember a lot of guitarists and bigger bands were talking almost like they were ashamed of the guitar, the guitar's dead or the guitar's boring, or it's like, it's, they were downplaying like, Oh, guitar's out. This isn't like septum piercings are in and the guitar's out, you know? And the darkness was like the ultimate fuck you to that. And me and all my friends loved like, the excess fucking like testosterone headbanging crazy insane aspects of rock and roll and metal and so we felt very represented by those guys you know it's it's so cool to well even now this episode uh will be airing the week that it turns 20 years old 
which is insane. And, you know, obviously they've announced like a big tour. We we also actually, at the time of recording this, I think yeah. saw a teaser that they might be finally repressing this thing, hopefully. Oh, it God, would be please. so cool. Uh, but, you know, at the time, it seems like at every turn, it's like, yeah, this band does really well live. They're, they got like a really good following, but I don't know if I really, like no one really seemed like they wanted to take a chance on them. But like, you know, clearly this was something that people wanted. I mean, it topped the charts in the uh, United Kingdom. It went uh, straight to number two before going number one, like a week, a couple weeks later, uh, it stayed there for four weeks, sold like uh, a million and a half copies uh, in the UK, uh, went 36 on the US Billboard 200 chart. So like, it's just kind of like odd to me that even while like bands like Three Doors Down, Linkin Park and, you know, Nookback, they're all chopping the tarts at the char- charts at the time. It's like people are still they still want this like yeah. wild, weird thing that this band is like it was there the yeah. whole time. I think what happened is Justin is a fucking animal like that. The guy is born a fucking animal. And I think the the quick success, it's like an age old cliche story of a young dude getting too much success too yep. quick. Mm-hmm. Cause I know he was doing like 200 grand a year in cocaine <sighs> between the first and second album. <sighs> and another thing I noticed that happened is pitchfork. Another thing that was like super relevant at the time, still like somewhat relevant. Um, they actually gave divided by darkness, like an 8.2 or something. I couldn't, could not believe that shit. Uh, uh, my friend Andy from Austin wrote the review. That's probably oh, there, but, yeah. <laughs> he's a good guy. He knows what's up. Yeah. Um, but dude, Pitchfork like loved the first record. Shit all over the second record. And I didn't think the second record was that bad. I didn't think it was as incendiary as the first one when it came out, but it was pretty solid. You know, I mean, they started off with him like snorting a line yep. on the oh. microphone. <laughs> yep. Like- when I heard that track, uh the one-way <laughs> ticket track. I heard it and was just like, okay, it's it's the same vibe. It's a little more simplistic. But when I heard the big chorus, I was sucked in. Yeah. It was just like, oh, killer. I was like, this is fucking great. This is what I want in a rock and roll band. Like, th- these are great hooks. People decided they weren't cool anymore all of a sudden. And then I think, I think the problem with having a shtick like that, whether it's costumes or whatever, yeah, is it works in the very short term. I think a lot of the people that bought that darkness record did it because of the video or because of the novelty of it. Mm. And those people are not uh, loyal. They're not loyal They're They probably moved on to fucking whatever else came next after that. I don't know. Those are the type of people probably bought the CD because it had a Macarena on it. Yeah. You know, and then yeah. they just forget. They're like, oh, that's cute. And then they forget. This was such a weird time for like hard rock music, rock music in general. Like, it was obviously, as Austin touched on, it was kind of in that weird post-grunge kind of era where no one really had solos and everybody was taking the the Lane Staley vocal approach, but doing it in a really terrible way. And, you know, there, was, there wasn't anything really like this, which we've touched on, but it was like, this was like 2000 to maybe 03 was such a really weird period of time for hard rock music. Yet yeah, you had the rise of new metal, post-grunge. And then by by the time I was really getting into heavy music in like 03, 04, new metal was essentially dead. Uh, you know, it was it was gone. And then after that, you had almost that like kind of mall punk, mall screamo, emo, whatever you want to call it kind of thing going on. And there was just that weird period where like these guys just dropped this lead weight into everybody's laps. And it was like, oh, yeah, here we come, you know, swinging for the fences. We've got 
hooks, we've got harmonies, we've got big guitars, you know, we've got the whole image, we've got this falsetto vocal that is perfect for this music. I think I think you're right. They were the nail in the new metal coffin. And another thing, like you precisely pinpointed the the death year of new metal is 2003 because like the first big show that i went and saw and i've talked about this before and i got i got brutalized because (laughs) of like people have retroactively rewritten history and it's weird like the most progressive wokey like super accepting people in the world now want to act like limp biscuits fine they're not fine they're not fucking fine if you were there (laughs) you would know why that's great so fuck you um but yeah, but Summer Sanitarium 2003, Metallica took out Mudvayne, yep, Deftones, Linkin Park, Limp Biscuit, and Limp Biscuit. Not just when me and my buddies saw him and brutalized him that day, but they. I remember, I was there. If you're, if you weren't even fucking born, don't tell me shit in the comments. I was fucking there. They got brutalized on that tour. People were over new metal in 2003. They. They got destroyed in uh, St. Louis when we saw them in Chicago. I remember reading on Blabbermouth they were getting destroyed that day. People were fucking over that shit, dude. And that's the way to be because that shit sucks. And those guys, <laughs> I hear Wes is cool, but, you know, he quit the fucking band for a reason. Old boy's a scumbag, dude. If your name wasn't Slipknot at that point, like, you weren't surviving new Metal. Yeah, Slipknot's actually good. Yeah, know? exactly. <laughs> like, even at that point, like, Slipknot wrote, like, a great hard rock record, which was the subliminal versus album volume three. I mean, it's got a, it's got a couple bummers on it, but overall it's like, Hey, that's one of the best things that band ever wrote. And it was a Rick Rubin produced record. Yeah. Um, like, I mean, that came in Oh four. And I remember that was, that was my gateway band for like stream music. I remember reading all the articles on it and learning about the, just the trauma around it. And it was like, even, even with new metal and it's dying, uh, like its last leg, everyone was still touting like, "Hey, but Slipknot's still really good." Absolutely, I I was not a Slipknot fan until '04 when I saw them at right. Ozfest. Um, that was a packed lineup too. Dude, ridiculous life changer. Um, but I I appreciate Slipknot more now mm-hmm. than I did when they came out for sure because my experience with the whole thing was like. I was ostracized in a small town in Oklahoma for wearing metal shirts and listening to metal, having long hair. Absolutely. When Slipknot hit, all of a sudden, everybody's doing it. And I'm like, you motherfuckers were just bullying me literally last week. And now y'all are like fucking basically culturally appropriating my shit. (laughs) I distinctly remember being in high school, uh, maybe junior high at that time. And, you know, short, kind of pudgy kid at the time. And I was... I may have had a Megadeth shirt on and I remember some like jock dick was like, just grabbed me by the hair. Like I was growing my hair out of the time and like twisted it and all that. And I remember going to my dad's in the Carolinas for the summer, coming back, same kid had a Pantera shirt on. And oh. it was just like, it's like, no wonder I'm jaded. Uh, like yeah. at, at 33 <laughs> years old. Like I get it. Of course it. it's Pantera dude. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Everyone's <laughs> got to hear a walk and like, it's the biggest walkout track of all time. It's like, all right, man, have fun with that. I'm going to go listen to Trend Kill. Yeah. Well, and uh, to kind of circle back to what you said at the Sanitarium Tour, too, as well, it's like they took this band out, like, at least a couple of dates in uh, 2004. I think they appeared on the, the Darkness, like, appeared with Metallica. So even they 
Did they? I, I believe that's in my notes. It's like God they... Uh, I wish I could have seen that one. It was a festival run in Europe. I would have had a way better time at that one. Oh, absolutely. You had a bad time with all that other shit. <laughs> <laughs> the, the festival run that you've been on, you just came back from, like, wild. It seems like, how have you had any time to just, like, sleep, but... You know, what was it like? I mean, the Metallica played uh, twice, two dates, right? And on download? Yeah, and we we lucked out and played the Saturday with them, same day. Um, dude, yeah, I, I've been known to, like, not sleep, especially when I was getting fucked up back in the day, you know, in my 20s. It was like, I would not sleep, but I broke, I broke my record for most consecutive hours awake, like, twice in a row. We were only over there for a week, you know? So it was crazy. Uh, yeah, and a lot of that was just like adrenaline, I think, because we we played Download. We had a really good slot, thanks to this dude, Cam, that works with Download, who's a, like a legitimate fan of the band. He put us on at 5.30 p.m. on Saturday, man, which was a fucking trip. Like, we played a, we played a tent stage, but we, like, as far as the schedule, we played after municipal waste, after carcass, after clutch. We were like, what the fuck? So he hooked it up. Um, it was, it was great. And, you know, watched a little bit of Metallica. I'm, I'm going to be totally honest. They were struggling first few songs. Uh, I think their in-ears were giving them grief and stuff. Cause like everything I've seen on YouTube is killer. James sounds better than he has in 20 years. I think I agree. Um, and Lars has been playing really good. And what I've seen, but I, I just think they were they were having a tough time getting going. And we actually had to leave because we were playing a fest the next day in the Netherlands again oh, with yeah. Municipal Waste and Clutch. And actually got to watch everybody. Municipal Waste, just kind of like also another band kind of taking maybe influences from yesteryear. But I mean, that was like that was what got me into new music. That I would say they're one of easily one of the most important bands within the past like couple decades. Cause a hundred percent. Yeah. And you can hear their influences, but when it comes on, you know it's them. Yeah, I know Tony's voice like yeah. that. Like, they just have a personality, man. Yeah, so you you getting to watch them like throughout this kind of week must have been cool to see how like, I mean, obviously they're no strangers to Europe uh, and you yourself, but, you know, just it seemed like such a blast to be able to do that in such a short period of time. Yeah, it was, man. It, it felt like we were on tour together. I've, I haven't known those guys for a while. Um I told a story on my podcast about the first time I met him. Actually, I was 18. It was like right when Hazardous Mutation came out, involved a lot of beer, going to <laughs> Kansas to get real beer, you know. Uh, but I then I toured with them. I toured with Tony and Phil in, when they were in Iron Reagan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they're just good dudes, man. They're they're really good dudes and they work. I've been watching them firsthand work as hard as anybody that's ever done this shit since you know, for 20 years now. Uh, and it's just inspiring. And and they're a good example that you don't have to get jaded and you don't have to lose the love of it, you know? So yeah, it, it felt like we were on tour with them pretty much. And we, you know, we ended up doing two shows with Guar. Uh, and I'm glad I waited to watch the Guar documentary that's on Shudder. Oh, I, I just watched it. It will make you cry. If you oh, great. Awesome. I've watched that thing probably three times. I've subjected my girlfriend to it because it's yeah. so great. I actually I bought a physical copy because I had to have it. It's fucking beautiful, man. If it's you a have great documentary, all, it, it'll touch your soul. Um, and I'm so glad I waited to watch it because 
I would have just been like so awkward with those guys and like so much more of a fanboy. Uh, they were, dude, they're so cool. So cool. They were so nice to us. First day, it felt like we'd known each other for a long time. Um, so I, we'll probably do, they mentioned it a few times. Hopefully we'll tour the States with Guar, do like a full tour. That'd be awesome. We've, we've been uh, fortunate. Dylan and I saw him once. Uh, with COC. At- yeah, that's right. It was the original lineup. Yep. The three piece, right? The three piece. Yeah. Yep. And oh, then wow. uh, what was it? We were like, I just remember being blown away. It was uh, post odorous passing, but uh, just being in a Waffle House booth, just covered in <laughs> fucking fake blood, <laughs> like eating, eating loaded hash browns. Yeah, I was doing that in Oklahoma. I saw him sounds of the underground, man, 2005. Like oh, the wow. Very, very that initial first. sounds. Yep. Very first one. Uh, then yeah, we played Hellfest, man, with the uh, with Iron Maiden, and I mean that was like, if I had to do a top five like best days of my life, that would be in the top five for sure. I don't want to upset my wife and not say that <laughs> getting married was number one, and it was, That's but a, yeah, like I, I gotta say, Hellfest was number two probably. It just everybody I've ever known that's played there says it but you really just have i feel like anybody that's into metal should figure out a way to make that happen whether you're playing or not just like it's it is it's the coolest thing in the world that you could ever experience if you're into metal well and uh it's it's funny with iron maiden and like again your your band is kind of also built around this like multi like the twin guitar style obviously they have three but like even the darkness you know justin and dan just kind of going back and forth off each other. You know, obviously you're a big fan of Thin Lizzy as we are, uh, Judas Priest, Metallica, Carcass, even, you know, Bill Steer and, and Michael Amet. Uh, I mean, you literally have a guy who used to play in Carcass now uh, with Tom. Uh, how did you guys meet? Like, what was, what made, what, what makes it about Tom that like fills out that kind of like twin guitar thing that you guys have? Uh, he's like old school fucking guitar hero that looks up to all the same bands and same guys that I did. Um, yeah, Tom was playing lead for Carcass, and we played a Decibel Fest together on the East Coast. Uh, and then I met him. I was on tour uh, in the Bay Area, and he came into the green room because uh, he's in a band with Matt Harvey from Exhumed. We were on Pounder. tour with Ex- Exhumed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Tom came in, and uh, somebody mentioned Spirit of Drift or something. He was like, oh, you're the guy that's in Spirit of Drift? I fucking love that band. And I was like, what you're in carcass like, that's cool <laughs> uh so we became buds and we ended up playing the decibel metal and beer fest on the west coast that same year and i ran into him again and you know we had uh at that point spirit of drift was sharing three members with gate creepers so we had split up made the decision to split up the bands mm-hmm. it was just kind of an untenable situation turning down tours and everything so I knew that there was going to be a lineup shift and I was still like kind of keeping an open mind about how that was going to go down, you know? And I remember watching carcass with my wife at metal and beer fest, uh, 2019 in Anaheim and just like watching Bill steer and watching Tom. And I said to her out loud, I was like, I don't have a fucking guitar player like that, you know? And COVID happened and all this shit was going down and me and Tom, we had stayed in touch and he ended up, uh, He's a British citizen, but he lives in the Bay Area. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, and he had some green card issues. And unfortunately, fortunately for me, unfortunately for somebody, uh, 
Carcass had to get another guy because they needed to tour, and he just couldn't. Like, he was concerned if he left the country, he would get stuck back in England or whatever. Um, and we just kind of were going from fill-in to fill-in at the time. Our friend Leanne played for us on the Yob tour that we did in Europe. She's fucking awesome. Big fan of her as a guitar player and a person. Um, but she, you know, she couldn't quit her job and this and that. And so I got a hold of Tom and he was like, yeah, let's do it. And we did it. And it's badass. He dude. And he, he plays lead on the, on the new album. I do too. Uh, but it's like, there's been moments in my life where really my guitar playing got like forcibly stepped up. You know, my old band did his easy top cover set. And I, I was like super obsessed with getting it just right. That was a huge leap in my guitar playing. Um, one of the biggest leaps in my guitar playing has been like making sure that I'm not getting smoked by Tom Draper <laughs> on the new record. <laughs> but that's what I love about all these bands is really that like you may underestimate maybe the singer, but he still brings it too. you know, like with, with just, it's like, Oh man, to have such a full, like just well-oiled machine, like the darkness is, is pretty <laughs> incredible. Well, yeah, and to bring it back to them, man. Um, I have a special place in my heart for guys that play guitar and sing at the same time, but particularly if they play solos. Yes. Yep. And I have a list like Wino is up at the top. Yeah. Buzz from the Melvins is up, up at the top. Mustaine is up at the top. Oh yeah. Waylon Jennings. A lot of people there don't realize he's ripping all the solos. Yeah. Um, and I remember when permission to land first came out, there's a couple late night TV show performances you can find on youtube the one that i'm talking about i had to like dig and dig and dig to find out that it even actually existed it's not on youtube there's like hardly any record of it but it was i think letterman i was just looking it up the other day to prove to myself like i wasn't crazy i think it was letterman and it's the year the record came out and i hadn't i don't think i'd seen the music video or anything and i remember watching them and I was assuming that Dan was going to rip the solo because Justin's like singing, which is like really demanding physically and mentally what he does. And when he stepped back from the mic and ripped the solo, I was like, I like jumped off the couch. I was like, this is the baddest motherfucker. <laughs> so he's on the list for sure. And dude, actually Chase from Gate Creeper and I went and saw the darkness. No way. Yeah. And Phoenix, it was probably like 2000. 15 or 16 i was sober so it had to be after 2015 and holy shit like the guy was doing a handstand and clapping his feet over his head like how you would clap your hands over your head to get the crowd to start clapping he was upside down doing that with his legs and his feet it was fucking insane and singing at the same time that's insane that's yeah. wild i i mean just when i listen to this record i mean it's so everything about it like every there's there's no like sometimes i feel like i'll listen to a song and i'm like i hear a specific note and i'm like i have to go back and just listen to that one <laughs> little thing again it's so catchy and one of the things that really stuck out to me about the making of this record that they i think they had damn near like 50 songs that they had like formulated over like this two-week period recording this and they didn't they made a point to not write down anything just so they would remember the catchiest parts yeah. and they would kind of whittle it down and i guess i'm curious about, about your upcoming record you know how many songs do you go in with like typically for something like this how do you know what to cut how do you know what like ah that doesn't work here uh or, here we go this song works perfectly for the record like what 
you know, what are you coming into the, you know, the studio with typically? That's a great question. And and that's a great tidbit about that darkness. Yeah, I've never heard that. Yeah. I yeah. love it. I love it. And Tony Iommi has said something similar, actually. Like he has tapes and tapes and tapes of riffs, but he said the ones that tend to become songs or make it onto records are ones that I don't record because I remember them. Right. And it's like kind of the, what it like Dylan, you always mentioned like Bruce, Bruce Springsteen coming in with like just a ton of songs and then maybe yeah. somehow coming down to like 10, 12 songs. It's like perfect. Like, yeah. Um, so normally yep. on a record, I'll again, cause I was so crunched with time. I was in two full time touring and recording bands for most of the time that spirit of drift has existed. So it was like, there was always a window that's when Spirit of Drift has to make a record. We have this much time and then we're back on tour. We're in the studio with Gate Creeper or whatever. So there was always a crunch. So I would end up maybe with like 10 songs that I had worked on and one of them gets scrapped or maybe the riffs get recycled into something else. Uh, with Ghost of the Gallows, the new record, I started writing in March 2020 just to cope with the lockdown and everything. I think I wrote and demoed 20 to 30 songs. Um, three of them ended up becoming the Forge Your Future EP. Two of them ended up on 20 Centuries Gone. And then from there, I started like whittling down. Now, a lot of those songs got completely thrown out and forgotten. A few of them, there would be like one really, really, really exceptional riff that was like handed to me from some divine source that would end up in another song that was better in a general sense, like a better song. Uh, and then like give her to the river, the starting track. I thought that song was done for like a year, but there was always something. There's a certain artist's intuition for me, at least that'll sort of like really barely consciously gnaw at me at certain moments throughout a month or a year or whatever. And I, there was something about that song. I was like, man, it, I don't know. It was just an instinctive feeling that it was off. And we had a really gnarly thunderstorm and a tree right in our front yard got struck by lightning. And right after that happened, I rewrote that whole song, except for the intro. It was like, it was like I literally got hit by like divine inspiration or something. So um, my my uh trick with ghost since i didn't really have as much of a time restriction is i didn't want there to be a second on the album that wasn't a moment of spontaneous like creative combustion like that because it's really hard to come by that you can't force that sometimes you can force a really good song out of yourself but there's a certain magic and anybody that's tried to write a song or a book or anything knows what I'm talking about where you get hit with something and it's almost like you didn't think about it. You didn't try. It was, it was channeled from somewhere else. It was already there and you just like ran into it and it came out of your body almost like you're just a vessel for something that came from a different dimension or something. Uh, so that became like a conscious goal. It was like, there's not going to be anything on this album that wasn't a result of that weird, magical spontaneity. Excellent. Uh, one of the last things I wanted to touch about on the record, and, and Dylan uh, and I have discussed this at length too, is that I feel like there are you know, so many bands like The Darkness who 
uh, out there who maybe pull from like influences and right. You know, there are a lot that don't do it well. I'll say that I, you don't have to name names, but what I, I guess I, I do want to touch on is that, you know, bands like yourself who are able to kind of take from the past and do it in a like contemporary and like unique creative way. Are there bands that come to mind for you, like in recent years that kind of do that thing without like just it's verbatim and it's like not great. We've all listened to those bands, but you know, I, I just think of like, you know, like D- Dylan's called Baroness, like modern day, like, like heavy metal almond brothers for years or something like that, you know, but like, you know, uh, like tribulation comes to mind or like bands like yeah. that. I don't know. Did, are there any bands that stick out in your mind as like they're doing, they're doing it right. Yeah, there's a ton. Um, and really any good band you could say that about, cause every band has influences. There's sure. never been a band yep. that didn't have any influences. Um, but I mean, there's three uh, or four right behind me. I'm actually getting ready to record like my best of 2023 so far thing. But um, yeah, Majesties is great. They do the old Gothenburg thing, but Tanner has a very specific guitar sound and a way of approaching harmonies that none of, you know, this record is very obviously influenced by the first three, two or three In Flames records early at the gates, stuff like that. But Tanner's guitar sound and his approach to harmonies and song structure is not the same as any of those bands. So to me, I recognize that it's him. Uh, Poison Ruin is great. I would say their influences are like Discharge and Killing Joke and stuff like that. Uh, I can hear the Killing Joke influence in the vocals, but I know for sure it's not jazz from Killing Joke. It's whatever this dude's name is from Poison Idea or Poison Ruin. Sorry. Uh, Witch Hazel's great, you know, um, obvious Thin Lizzy and Ashberry and Blue Oyster Cult influence, but it doesn't really sound like any of those bands. Um, and I want to shout out Green Lung too, man, because we ended up connecting. I've been talking to the singer a lot. Uh, I was really blown away when Woodland Rights came out. I'm pretty much over a cult stoner doom shit, and I have been for like a long time, but they do something different. They the intro to that album sort of reminds me of like blue record era Baroness with a huge guitar layer. Like you have to really understand intervals and chords and uh, avoiding dissonance to make an intro like the intro on Woodland Rights. Like, I don't know how many guitar tracks are going on, but it's fucking sick. Uh, so I've been talking to Tom from Green Lung. We're going to try to make some touring happen at some point because it turns out we're, uh, we're both really big mutual fans of each other. So do you, um, do either of you have any final thoughts with the darkness permission to land as we approach the 20th year anniversary of this incredible record? Dylan. Well, uh, for me, it was a big, big album, uh, for my adolescence. I don't think I realized it till much later. And I, when it came to, I started out as a bass player uh, still am, but when I picked up a guitar for the first time and I felt those harmonies come out, the layering, the writing that way coming out, all of those old influences. Uh, I mean, I can go down to one part on this record in particular that really sticks out, and that's there's a lead break in the song Friday Night, Friday night I knew that it. has that <laughs> that's that harmony, and it stuck with me for the rest of my life. I hear that to this day. If I'm working out in my garage and it's on, I get chills immediately. Um, that song and growing on me in particular are the two that really did it for me with songwriting riffs. Uh, I think the big thing to remember with this album is 
you know, it's, there's not really a clunker on it. There are tracks that I prefer over others. Uh, I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of kind of blues rock or blues in general, but there's, I think it's the song. Um, there's a track on here in particular that does like the whole blues beat down thing really well. And it's not, it's not tired sounding, uh, love on the rocks. That's the track. Sorry. Um, and it just sounds heavy and really just pummeling and it just hits in the right way. And it has influenced every way that I write just as much as Hetfield's right hand has influenced the way I write. Uh, it, it's, it's in me, it comes out. And that's kind of my point with riffs in general is they're just there. It's that divine inspiration you touched on. Uh, you know, those old dime bag Daryl interviews he would do where he was always rigged up that if he woke up in the middle of the night, had a riff idea, he could dive straight up, record. I mean, my computer is set up the same way, just if, you know, something's there. And this album in particular uh, really does it for me. I mean, hearing those opening chords to Black Shuck all the way to the the closing notes of the ballad at the end of the album, it's just a fun record. Uh, it's a fun way to kind of get back to roots of what hard rock and, you know, heavy metal should sound like if you want it to sound that way. And just go like, yep, I, you know, I listen to more extreme metal than I could probably ever imagine at this point. But it's always fun to go back and get a bit of a palate cleanser with something like this. That's just fun, you know, uh, sitting around with your buddies, listen to it. I know Austin and I have done that many a night, just like having a couple drinks. What are we going to put on? It's like, all right, let's put on Aerosmith. Let's put this on. Let's put Skid Row on anything. Just have a good time. And this this album has influenced me more than I've ever admitted uh, just with the older I get to it. Nate, any uh, any final thoughts on the album? Yeah, man, I, I agree with all that. Um, I would say my favorite section of the album is uh, Given Up, Going Into Stuck in a Rut, those two songs, oh. how they don't even stop. Yeah. Like, when, stuck, when the snare hits to start Stuck in a Rut, it's like a pure adrenaline rush. Uh, but I knew you were talking about Friday Night before you even finished this. <laughs> That's another highlight. Uh, and yeah, that's that thin Lizzie priest maiden shit, you know, um, dude, I've got born too late tattooed on me because sometimes I get really bummed out that I didn't get to be 16 years old when ACDC came out or 16 years old when, uh, thin Lizzie came out or 16 years old when, uh, black Sabbath bands like that. But I, I or even like, I didn't even get to be 16 when Slave to the Grind by Skid Row came yeah. out. You mentioned Skid Row, you know. But because of the darkness, I got to sort of experience what that's like. Like cruising around Bartlesville, Oklahoma with a bunch of like wild animals, basically listening to music made by a bunch of like hormonal wild animals. And yeah, it's... Uh, I feel very fortunate that I got to experience that record at that age. Cause the records you experience at that age are like forever part of your, uh, nostalgic soul or whatever. And yeah, that, that one's dug in for sure. I hope they, I really hope they reissue that vinyl and dude, I would like to tour with the darkness and see what happens with that. That could go either way, but, uh, that could be fun. If you put it out there, it can happen. Yeah, I do. That's how it works. Yeah. I started wearing a crowbar shirt in 2020. I literally looked at my wife. I was doing, I got a Dunnable signature guitar mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Uh, shout out Donable Guitar. Oh, yeah. To Absolutely. Love. Sasha, Don't, always. Don't's got the bass. Or the I do. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they're yeah. great. Yeah. Great, man. But I, I was going to do like a photo for him to promote it. And I literally went through my shit and I was like, what band would I really want to like get on their radar? And I found my crowbar shirt and I looked at my yeah. wife and was like, oh, I want, I'm going to wear this so that hopefully we can tour with crowbar and yeah. it worked. So there you I go. Need to get an old school darkness shirt from hot topic and start putting that out there. It'd be a Absolutely. fun one. Wow. I, uh, you know, you were 16 when you got to hear this record and I hope there's a 16 year old out there that gets to listen to ghost at the gallows. Uh, um, I know we're stoked for it, man. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be out August 18th through century media records. Um, really really quick uh what do you hope to accomplish in 2023 like what, what what's on the docket i know you've already done so so much uh what are you looking forward to this year and in the future i hope to get my fucking spine whipped back into shape first <laughs> and foremost man that's like number one thing uh yeah i got this i got this disc issue going on it's really fucking me up um so yeah take care of that um really just kind of like take a step back and examine my health for a minute. Just make sure everything's good. Uh, Cause I'm not sure much will be happening in 2023. To be honest, we are playing a uh, metal injection fest in Anaheim, like a month after the record comes out, that'll essentially serve as an album release. Uh, we might not be playing any more shows in 2023. The industry, as far as that's concerned is just like super fucked up uh every band in the world is trying to all tour at the same time and there's not enough venues and not enough people behind the scenes and there's not enough money in it right now everybody's fucking broke because our world leaders are a bunch of sociopathic fucking evil people that suck and are fucking trying to kill us uh but yeah 2024 man i'm sure we'll be back on the road like i said been talking to green lung about a couple things uh you know, I've been talking to the crowbar guys still. Um, I, I have a list of bands I want to tour with. So we're just, you know, high on fire is putting a new record out. Oh, I, yeah. I talk to Jeff every once in a while. Um, we really about, get along with them. So that would be cool. That uh, reissue that's coming out too, right? The From the first record? Yeah, I got that. I got oh, that. Just I got mine in the day. day. Yeah. But dude, the nostalgia thing, like I know that the new mix is technically better, but yeah, I, I can't. I don't feel the same way about it. You know, I liked the muddiness and the spookiness and the difficulty discerning exactly what the fuck is even yep. happening. Yeah, was like the charm for me. Uh, but yeah, I can't wait to hear the new High on Fire. We we really like them. Uh, you know, we're label based with Tribulation. I really like their new guitar player and their new EP uh buddies with some of the dudes in uncle acid i feel like that would be a good fit um yeah obviously buddies with municipal waste that would be fun to do more shows yeah man we're we're here i think once the record comes out people are going to realize what the fuck is up um and hopefully we'll be i'll get my body and my mind right and when the time's right we'll be back on tour well i can't thank you enough uh please check out the record Ghost at the Gallows coming out August 18th. There's some singles out now. Uh, listen to Big Riff Energy Podcast, man. Uh, Nate, truly is such an honor to be able to talk to you. I mean, you're definitely a big reason why we do this every week and just talk about riffs, man. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this week. I, I really appreciate really it. appreciate that, man. Dylan and Austin, thank you guys so much. Dude, appreciate it. We'll see you Thanks, next man. week on Riff Worship.